This episode of Toes on the Line is brought to you by Thorn. Thorn has the most extensive line of NSF certified for sport products. To receive 20% off any Thorn product, simply go to my website, coachgeograssi.com, and become a subscriber. to the Total Line Podcast. I'm your host, Gio Grassi. Today, I got Seton Hall strength and conditioning coach, Angelo Gingerelli. Ange, thanks for coming on. He is also the New Jersey State Director for the NSCA, which is a huge thing for New Jersey because I feel like we're in the best location in the world, Angelo. I say that because I'm so biased and I believe it. Um, but it's awesome because you get to connect with so many coaches around the tri-state area, which were kind of bunched up. Um, and you've been at Seton Hall for some time, Angelo. So thanks for coming on. And if you could just share your journey, your background, uh, how you started in strength and conditioning and how you ended up where you're at now. Hey, man, Gio, it's an honor to be on the show. I've been a fan for a long time, and I'm glad we finally connected to do this. And just before we go any further on my background, I want to second what you said about New Jersey being number one, by far the best state in the union. Hell and yeah. number two, that per, per mile, per square mile, we have better strength and conditioning, in my opinion, than any other place on the planet, right? Hell yeah. We have big-time <laughs> high school in every town with great yes, weight and done, right? We have the private sector killing it from bodybuilding gyms, powerlifting gyms, Olympic weightlifting teams, CrossFit, crushing the private sector, right? We yep. have about a dozen colleges. I'm at Seton Hall. You're at Monmouth. We got friends in another 10 schools in the state getting it done. We got professional sports teams that train here, right? Yeah, like correct. The, that they don't want to admit it. They put New York and Philly on their jerseys, but they train in New Jersey. They right? do. <laughs> so, and I, I, I went at, it was my first year as the New Jersey state director of the NACA. And I, I booked the last conference pretty much with just Jersey men and women on the speaking bill. And we sold it out. Everybody crushed it. I plan on doing that again next year. And I, there's obviously great men and women doing great things as profession all over the world. Right. Yeah. But I think we really got some special in New Jersey. We have a, a culture of training and being physical and, and wanting to be big and strong and get better and excel. And we got that Jersey hustler mentality. And I think we're guys like me and you are doing a good job of applying that to the weight room, the football field, the wrestling mat, the pool, whatever it might be. Would you agree? No, I, I agree 100 percent. And and to touch on that a little bit, you know, having that hustler mentality. I mean, you look at a lot of head strength coaches around the nation. I mean, so most of those guys are from Jersey. And I don't want to drop names, but um, it, I, I know a few people who started in the Parisi Speed School sector, you know, kind of where my background was, and they kind of went off and branched off and became head coaches at, you know, universities around the nation. So, you know, they're out there. They're out there. Yeah, and you know what, what I'll say, man? I think and it, we're, we're two, two Italian-American guys from Jersey, right? So I feel like we can say this on this show. Maybe some other people can't, but it's this. We grew up in the in the era of the, the stereotypical Jersey Guido meathead mentality, right? Every other right. professional wants to point and laugh at that. But you can't tell me that mentality which made kids like me and you go lift weights with our older cousins and our uncles in the basement. We went we went on to become good strength and conditioning coaches, right? And right. write books and publish articles and put out good social media content. So I think to some extent, being from a place where training and quote unquote getting jacked is part of the thing. All, all we want to do when we're you know, young, young boys and girls, we become men and women that become some of the leaders in the strength and conditioning profession. It makes perfect sense to me, right? It does. Now, and, and to touch on that real quick, <laughs> I'm laughing. <laughs> so I grew up in Jersey City, right? Kind of, you know, like like hood, hood area, Baldwin Avenue and stuff, right? So I always had the, the Italian background. We're immigrants, right? 
out of college. I loved lifting weights, loved to look good. So I never really got that Guido mentality. I always had a fade. See the hair I got on my head and I started growing yeah. it like five years ago. Right. And it wasn't until last year when my wife and I moved down here to the Jersey shore that I started adopting that tanning method. Yeah. <laughs> so in the summer, man, we're done training. I'm either on the beach or on my back porch just laying out in the sun, man. It's awesome. It's a great feeling. Yeah, man. So, hey, man. Since you brought up the Jersey Shore, I'll get into my background now. Since I kind of, I kind of made the interview take a hard left for a second. <laughs> That's fine. I, I grew up, in, I grew up at the Jersey Shore. So I'm from Thompson, New Jersey. I'm from literally three miles from where they filmed the MTV show, The Jersey Shore, in the you know late 2000s. That that's where I grew up. I'm I'm Tom's River, Ocean County, born and bred. And in the 90s, I was really lucky, man. I went to a public high school, went to Tom's River High School East, and we had a good weight room. For the time, it was a great weight room. Looking back, it's been dated. We trained differently, whatever. But in the 90s, we had a great weight room and I had a great high school strength and conditioning coach, which is incredibly rare even now in a public high school. But it, it was unheard of in the 90s. We had a great guy named Ron DeVito. I'm still in touch with him. I'm still talking to him once every couple of weeks. And he's had a huge influence on my life. In the early 90s, I was just a small kid that wanted to play high school sports. I went to the weight room to try to get better, and I fell in love with it. I just made some of my best friends in there. We had a high school powerlifting team. I got into powerlifting, uh, I guess, my sophomore year in high school and did that all the way through college into my 20s, did some Olympic lifting after that. But I graduated high school, and I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I, want, I thought college was the logical next step at that point. And right when I graduated Tom River High School East, the University of Delaware was starting an exercise science program with a major, with a concentration in strength and conditioning. So and they were starting it the year I was going to be a freshman. So it kind of just made perfect sense to apply to that program. And I got in, I got accepted. And I was one of the first people in the country, honestly, to have strength and conditioning on my undergrad diploma. Now it's pretty common, right? There's a ton of yeah. programs out there. But in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were very few. So I did that. And I got on with Coach Tony Decker and started interning in the weight room right away. So I started learning how to coach athletes, how to train, how to do programming. I had a bunch of great classes, great professors at the University of Delaware. From there, the last thing I had to do for that degree, my last degree requirement was a full-time, like 400-hour type internship, which a lot of kids have to do today. And I did that at NC State. So I moved down to Raleigh, North Carolina for the summer, worked predominantly with Charles Stevenson in the basketball program there for a couple months. And as soon as that was over, I really I looked out again and I got a graduate assistant position in strength and conditioning at Virginia Tech, was at Virginia Tech for a couple of years. And then right as I finished up my master's degree in health promotions, a full-time job opened up down at NC State and had an intern there a couple summers before I was able to slide right into that position, right? So I was NC State for a couple of years. Our baseball team did really well when I was down there, which led to a one-season run with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Uh, pro baseball strength and conditioning is a good experience. But then right when I was kind of wrapping up that season, the, the position I have now at Seton Hall opened up. And like we, we said already, I'm a Jersey guy. My family's here. I grew up a Seton Hall family. I had a Seton Hall starter jacket when I was a little kid, which I still nice. have in my house now. Uh, Pulled out for a throwback Thursday here or there. You know what I mean? But it was, <laughs> it was cool. a slam dunk. I could come home. I could be around my family. I could be a part of something that I was a fan of since I was probably, you know, 10, 11 years old. So it was, it was a no-brainer. I got lucky. I got the position in 2005. And I've been with Seton Hall for 18 academic years now, 18 seasons. Everyone will look at it. And uh, it's really been, it's been a good experience for me. And then from there, I got into, like you mentioned before, I'm the New Jersey director of the NACA. I've written a book that came out about a year, year and a half ago. And I've kind of gotten my hands in some adjunct professor. I do guest lectures all the time. And I, like I said, when I met you in person last week, I never saw a microphone I didn't like. But uh, that's kind of what I've been doing for the last decade plus here at Seton Hall. 
That's awesome, man. So if, if you could just talk about like, like what's been your, like your thing, because you know you never really hear about strength coaches staying in one location for a long time. You know, uh, what's kind of been like your motivation or like the this quote unquote secret um, that has kept you at one location for a long time? Okay, I think the, the biggest thing is this. And there's 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 two things. There's like a big philosophical big picture you can look at, right? Which sometimes uh-huh. in our profession you don't know what you got till it's gone, right? So sometimes you leave a position because you think the next thing is going to be better, and then you look back and you say, I should have stayed at place X, you know what I mean? And yeah. I think part in our profession, it's so hard because so, so many of us are not taken care of financially the right way. It becomes impossible to keep a job for any length of time. Right. 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 We have these, we, we have these sport coaching and athletic directors making exponentially more money than us, working less hours than us, telling us we need to be dedicated. We need to do more. We need to produce more. We need to, to do more, whatever it is to keep doing more. And they're not writing a bigger check for us to do more. Right. So right. it becomes very clear. You have to move on and move up in this profession. What I figured out probably around 10 years ago. So you know, I was already at seeing all five, six, seven years at that point was I want to be here. I want to live in New Jersey. I have a seven-year-old daughter. I'm her to grow up at the Jersey Shore like I did. Uh, my family's around here, and I like this job. So then when I started to almost immediately was I started to parlay this job into a couple different things. So I started adjunct teaching classes to make some more money on campus, right? So I have that quote-unquote side hustle mentality without leaving my day job. Right. Then I started, I wrote the book, Finish Strong Resistance Training for Endurance Athletes with the same idea. I like what I'm doing, but I also realized financially, if I'm going to stay at this level, there's probably a cap on how much money I'm ever going to make at my quote unquote real job. Mm-hmm. But I open up some other streams of income that allow me to do that. And I think you only get to do that when you're in one place for a long time. Right. The first, second year I was at CNO, I was overwhelmed with the job. I was doing something in this thing for probably eight varsity athletic sports. I was dealing with eight different coaches, whatever it was at the time, 250 student athletes. But then once you get comfortable and you learn the facility and you learn how things work, then you can open up some of those other doors for yourself. That's kind of what I've been working on the last several years, if that makes sense, sense to you. The other thing I think we the, the one of the, the, the tragedies, but kind of like negatives that we all move around so much in our profession. I think it goes for all the support staff jobs in college, for strength and conditioning, athletic training, academics, life skills, whatever it's going to be. Mm-hmm. You create an environment where everybody has to always be looking for the next best thing, right? Right. So nobody really ever gets great at their job at that one institution because they're always moving on to the next thing. So I think one thing that would help our college athletics in general, if you paid support staff people better, where they could keep a job for 15, 20, 25 years and get great at that job at that institution. Right. So then we mm-hmm. do, just, just for example, right. If you're, if your job is helping kids get internships at a college and you're making no money and always have to leave, you're always learning the new area you're in. Who where are the best places to intern? How, who matches up with who? But if you keep somebody in that interest recording your position for let's say 20 years and he or she has connections with all of these institutions in the area, it becomes much easier and they become more effective and they provide better service to their students by being in one place for a long time. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of it kind of one of the downfalls of college athletics, especially on the support staff side of things, that would create an environment where men and women have to move mm-hmm. on if they want to have any kind of financial freedom all in their life. But by doing that and having a place where, you know, if student athletes on campus for four years, they might have two or three strength coaches in that four year run. Who really wins in that environment? I don't think I don't think that's great. So I think one of the things I want to work with the NSA, you know, this is a who knows if this could ever happen, but are there ways to make these jobs better and have men and women keep them for a length of time and actually be better coaches and provide a better level of service to their student athletes by staying at one place longer? 
No, definitely. I agree with that 100% because I remember when I first got the Fordham in 2018, man, um, and I was head of the baseball uh, team there. You know, I was there, whatever. The, the seniors, I was their fourth strength coach. You know, that program, I was there, I don't know what, 10th strength coach in the 10th consecutive year. Um, but I stayed there for three years, which is good. I mean, you help help the guys, you know, come out to win an uh, A-10 championship and whatnot. Um, so it goes back to what you said, man. It's just about, you know, having the money to put these people in position to stay there for a while. And Fordham, I was part-time when I started. Um, they bumped the hell out of my pay after two years and I became full-time, which is great. Um, and same thing now, I'm at Monmouth, you know, I'm the, the swim team's coach. Um, I'm their, what, fourth strength coach in the last four years. Um, and now I'm their first strength coach in two consecutive years. So I, get, I think it helps with continuity and recruiting and stuff like that, um, which I like, you know, that, that you touched base on. And to go back a little bit about what you said about um, finding business opportunities for yourself. I remember talking with, I don't know if you know, Coach Pat Basil. Um, forget what school he's in. He's in, I think, New York, Hamilton College. He's in Hamilton College. Okay. Um, and he talked a little bit about that on my podcast, uh, I want to say about a year or year and a half ago. Um, he does a great job putting out content and selling things. Um, and not for a lot of money, you know, he'll still like little short, you know, high school strength program for this off season for like whatever, 20 bucks or something like that. And he'll sell it out there. Um, but he's always putting out content to sell. So it makes sense for what you said, you know, the guy's been there for a while and he just finds ways to make more money, you know? Yeah, and dude, and I, I've said this ad nauseum. I've been on 30 plus strength conditioning podcasts for the past year since the book dropped. And I'll say, I, I believe this in life in general. If you wait for somebody else to feed you, you're going to starve. Yeah. Get Figure it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and they, I, I think we all learned during the pandemic, too. Unfortunately, the is any job really safe anymore <laughs> in America the way the economy is? So, like, I like what I'm doing. I've been here a long time. I work with great people. But uh, I, this is a funny story, man. There's, a, there's another podcast I was like called the Smart Passive Income Podcast, right? About kind of kind of generating. That's a good one, yeah. It's a really guy like Pat Flynn a lot, and he's a good good guy. And uh, I was listening to it this summer. I, weirdly enough, I was on the um, in the car driving down to Georgia and Court to coordinate the 2022 NSCA New Jersey Clinic, right? And I'm way down there. Have my daughter with me. I just picked her up from school summertime or from camp. And uh, Pat was talking about the difference between a business and a job, right? Okay. So my daughter goes, what's the difference between a business and a job? So I pause the podcast. I go to the back, look in the back seat, and I go, a job is when you work for somebody else, a business is when you work by yourself. And my seven-year-old daughter goes, what do you have, a business or a job? And I go, I have a job at Seton Hall. I have a business, which is my books, my personal training, my public speaking appearances, all the other things you know I do, right? Mm-hmm. And she goes, if you have a job, why do you need so many businesses? And I said to her, because if somebody in my job decides they don't want me to have any more on Monday, we still got to eat on Tuesday. Right. That's, that's, that's a great way to put it. She, she'll, she's going to learn it from, I learned when I was young, she's going to learn it when she's young. Yeah, that's great. And it's funny, funny you say that because the, the, the term I started coining like over the last year or two was just the word brand. Right. Yep. And then, you know, people are, it's funny because my kids are always telling me at, um, at mom, it's like, Oh, cause Gio, you don't post much on social media. It's just content. And I'm like, well, I'm, I am my own brand. Coach Gio is my brand. So I need to forward that in my social media posts, in my Twitter posts, whatever and the I, case may be, you know, I, I, I want to give you credit on something real quick too, because I think LinkedIn is a, is a, is a great idea, right? Kind of uh-huh. Social media network, but I think so many people make it so boring. Right. And it's yeah, not yeah, fun yeah. to look at like Instagram or TikTok or those might be. I think you do a great job of posting your data 
that the stuff you're doing with the football team Appreciate and, being engaged, and being engaging on LinkedIn, like very few people are, man. I think that you're, you're really crushing LinkedIn more than probably, and I'll be honest, more than any strength and conditioning person I know in the country. So congrats on that. I, I appreciate it. It's good to hear the, uh, the feedback, man. I appreciate it because no one gives me the feedback, but to go on my, my, my next thing, I, I want to be the first person to get famous for being a LinkedIn troll. <laughs> you got seven vacation days. Your job is trash. <laughs> Congratulate so and so on twelve years of this company. Get a better job, man. Move on. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all I see I on LinkedIn, like like job say? anniversaries and shit. That's really it. And it's like, all right, I don't even know how to use this platform no more. Let me just post a little bit of content here and there. You know, yeah, but you only go at people so hard on LinkedIn. Apparently, there's some rules of engagement there that I'm not sure I understand. Right. Now that's that's funny, man. But Ange, I, I want to you know commend you for you, the way you branded yourself. Um, is is it fine if I call you Ange? Angelo, yeah, 100%. coach. All right, so, yeah, some people don't like unless I call him coach. You know, it's like all right, my bad, dude, bro. All right, listen, <laughs> I don't know who told you. I don't know who who, who commented on that for you. When somebody calls me coach, yeah. I automatically assume they don't know my name. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And and I'm, like, I'm on first name basis with my kids as well. Like I like we're we're like that. You know, we're, we're on the same level with that respect. Yeah. You know, but um, but now, yeah, I wanted to commend you about, you know, the way you branded yourself, you know, um, as an author, uh, as an adjunct professor, as a, the, the state director of, you know, you just, you know, putting everything into strength and conditioning and the, and the way you're just building your brand and how, how you've you know built upon each step of the way is just amazing. Because I remember at a certain point I applied to be state director years ago. This is when I was naive and stupid in my young 20s. I thought I was ready for the job. And obviously I'm, I was not, you know, um, if right. you could just if you could just talk a little bit about you know, the, the process and how you've gotten that, because I, I'd be curious to hear. Okay. Um, and, cool. and, and I think it's good for other people around the country. You know, how can they attain that, that status? Great, man. So the previous state director was Joe Lopez. He, yep. his, his full-time job is the head training district coach at St. John Vianney High School. And mm-hmm. he's a great strength coach and he's a great job as state director. And I think his run is even more impressive when you think about the second three years he was state director. He dealt with COVID and he moved everything online, kept the, the organization together in New Jersey. And I think that is he had, did a great first three years. His second three years, he did as good as you could with the way the world was from 2020 to 2022, right? So, mm-hmm. so super props to Joe Lopez. Um, in 2020, in 2019, I guess it was, he wasn't sure if he wanted to do it again. So I, like yourself, I applied in 2019 and didn't get it. And same thing, I was naive. I didn't quite understand how it was going to work or really what the position was, but I thought I could be an asset. The NSCA didn't, and I, I didn't get it for whatever reason. His term ran out in 2020. Two, I guess it was early 2022. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had been talking to him, got him speaking at a bunch of his events. And I kind of thought one day at the, one of the last clinics I was at, I talked to him kind of behind the scenes, like, well, what do you do? What's your main duties? What do you coordinate? Whatever. So when it came open, he wasn't able to run again. I kind of applied just like anybody else would. But I think the thing I did that might have been a little different is I came with some very concrete ideas of what I wanted to do, right? And it was, I had a a pretty significant plan that I put some time into of how to continue to grow the organization, how to grow, how many people show up at each conference, coming out of COVID and doing things live again, right? Mm -hmm. And my main thing was the NSCA is a a big umbrella, right? There's college training addition people like me and you, there's personal trainers, 
there's right now there's still athletic trainers and chiropractors and PTs that have that certification, right? There's a, the tactical side that's the new biggest thing in the world the last couple of years. That's where a lot of jobs are being created. And my thing was I wanted every conference to have or every event to have representatives from each, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, I might be a college and conditioning coach, but I want to go and see what, what's going on the tactical side of things and, and watch that, see the, the high school side of things. And then I had some ideas about networking and keeping people in touch and putting on good events and how it advertise those events and i think what happened was they kind of went down the, the rabbit hole of my social media and saw that number one i've done every podcast you can do i'm constantly kind of preaching the gospel of strength and conditioning and i was able to sell a book pretty good the last year or two maybe i can help sell those events right and yeah. i think the other thing i think that it was kind of kind of obvious if you look into me not that i'm like the most well-connected guy ever but i have enough connections and a professional I do not want to use the word clout at all, but enough professional kind of people I know and can call that I can put together a good event, right? right. And I think that I, I kind of proved that with the, the state clinic in November that I, I could do a good job with it and I want to continue to do a better job and, you know, get as much help as I can with the state advisory board from people like yourself and then just kind of keep moving forward and getting better every year so that when I vacate this position in three or six years, depending on whether I get, I get reelected or not, the NSA is in a better spot when I left and when I got there. All right. So that's, so it's more of like, Hey, I want to apply. It's also supposed to be running for like a governor or something like that. Right. You kind of have like some ideas, some concrete yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. The only, okay. the only thing that's I think a little different than the, uh, than the political type of election is that's a very small group of people that vote. It doesn't go out to like a general election type thing. Right. Okay. So, so for example, if, if it did, I think I would be even better at something like that. Right. Cause I like making videos. I like, I always make a joke where every job I've ever had, I've been, I've been the people's champ. You know what I mean? The yeah, administration yeah. might not get it. The coaches might not get it, but the players are going to love me. That's what it's going to be. Yeah. Um, and my thing is I, I just had some good ideas. I think it would appeal to everybody or at least appeal to the majority of people in our profession. That being said, you no, know, you don't make everybody happy all the time, obviously. But um, I think if anybody's interested in running for that position, look at what's been going on in your state the last couple of years. Right. And it, it might be, I was in a good position. I, I, I took over for a guy that did a great job for six years, but I came at it with Joe did X, Y, Z really well. I want to take the ball and run with it and go and do ABC, whatever it might be next. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a pretty concrete idea of how to build on what the person before me did. That being said, I think, I, mean, I don't think any states are doing that bad of a job that I'm aware of, but I think going in with that deal of like, I'm the new sheriff in town. I want to tear everything down at the last person that didn't start again. And that's probably a bad idea. I think when I kind of acknowledge everybody's got strengths and weaknesses. Okay. Hey, the person before me did this and this well. I want to do this and this even better. That's awesome, man. So you just, just building and keep building. So it's kind of like, hey, you're passing the torch to the next guy. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think the NSA does a good enough job that they don't put any people that are just complete train wrecks of human beings in these positions that run into the ground. Right. Right. Um, and then the other thing is, I think for any state director, I think this is something I kind of was good at. I think it, you got to be good at a couple different things, right? One, you got to know what's going on in the profession and will interest people to come out and hear speakers talk about, right? So, you know, in our, whatever the, the hot topics are this year, you kind of have to know. And I'm in a weird spot too because I work in a college, but I say all the time, like, I think what we learn in the textbook in the lab is super valuable, right? Mm-hmm. But in my day-to-day life, no student now that's ever come in my office and been like, hey, can I talk to you about the Krebs cycle? Hey, what do you know about the sliding film during muscle contraction? The, right, questions right. <laughs> get, the questions I get are, what's good with intermittent fasting? 
right? Mm -hmm. Or is F45 better than CrossFit? Or what's up with this new pre-workout I keep hearing about on Instagram? So you gotta, you gotta be, you obviously have to be good on the academic side, but you also have to be, you gotta live in the world your your players and your clients live in and speak the same language they do. And I think a lot of the kind of, I think the job of the NSCA now, in my opinion, is to bridge that gap, right? We know what's good in the journals. We know what's good in the research side of things. How does somebody like me take that information and make it digestible to a a 17-year-old kid that wants to lift weights to get big and strong and doesn't want to read an 80-page research article, right? How do right. we distill what's the most important and make it digestible to, you know, a, a 45-year-old couple that just wants to get back into shape after being out of shape for 20 years? So I think that's the kind of thing. How do you make what we do digestible to, to as big a population as possible? Okay. So to, to kind of pivot off that, because you're an adjunct professor, how, how do you I mean, as strength coaches, we almost know everything to, to like the most minute detail. So how, how, how has it been for you to break that stuff down into like basic, like translatable language to, you know, kids in an undergrad program? Yeah, it's, it, it can be challenging, right? Because mm-hmm. it's, it's a weird thing, man. You, the, the, um, the range of what kids know about the human body and my kids, I mean, college kids is very high. Like I think we get kids that know almost nothing about biology or physiology whatsoever. And you're really teaching at a level that's square one, if not square zero, right? Mm-hmm. Then you get some kids in your class or some student athletes that are super well-read and know a lot about, you know, the, the, you know, the minutiae of like nutrient timing and stuff like that. So you got to mm-hmm. kind of find, I kind of shoot for the middle, maybe a little below what you call the middle. And then that's kind of my base lecture. And then I'll take as many questions as people have, you know what I mean? Okay. Um, so we'll start with just like, I don't know, if it's nutrition, for example, we'll start with like just macronutrients, what a calorie is. And you'll be shocked at how many kids don't even know that by the time they're 18, 19 years old. And then we'll kind of kind of build from there. But I think you got to always start with the basics and then go from there in the classroom. Student athlete, I think, is a little bit different because student athlete wise, I think they more want to know just results. Like they don't really need to know why contrast training is good, but they want to know that that'll help them get stronger and more explosive kind of thing. And, okay. kind of, and then the kids that do want to know, I'm always open to have that conversation. Um, there's not always a time and place to do it right before we're about to do, you know, eight sets of heavy squats. Maybe we'll come to the room and talk about tomorrow or something, but today we just got to get it done. Yeah. I, it's funny. Cause I was an adjunct at fairly Dickinson um, in Teaneck years ago. I want to say, when was that? 2017, 2018. And it, it was challenging for me to teach to, you know, one, a, gr- a group of college kids that had, you know, like you said, no background in knowing human physiology, biology, um, and two, just, you know, trying to break it down into the most layman term possible, because to me, like I can understand what, you know, like you said, sliding filament theory, uh, you know, all this advanced stuff that we read on a daily basis, or we kind of know off the you know top of our head, um, but trying to break that shit down, I was like, I couldn't even break down what Titanus was. It's like, shoot, I don't know. Hey, man, <laughs> can, I jump, can I jump on a soapbox real quick on your podcast? Yeah, yeah go ahead. All right, real quick. I, I discuss this ad nauseum in our undergrad classes. I'm going to discuss it here right now because I think it's something we have to do better as a profession and America has to do better as society. And it's this. We have a, a public school system and a private school system with high school kids. We let kids graduate 18 years old and know nothing about the human body, Right. Not, right. Nothing about energy metabolism, nothing about macronutrients, nothing about a reasonable level of physical activity, right? Mm-hmm. Then they graduate the system at 18, and by 25 or 30 years old, two-thirds of us are overweight and obese and dealing with stuff like hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and all the things that go along with obesity and inactivity, right? Right. Can we be surprised if we're not ever addressing this in the public school system when kids are young, 
that by 30 years old were a train wreck health wise. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think the biggest thing we need to, and I'm not, I'm not at all a big, I hate America guy. I'm not that at all. But one thing I think we need to get better <laughs> at as a country is educating people when they're younger, but how the body works, right? People mm-hmm. want to know what, how does this, how does this equipment work in a gym? How does this machine work in the gym? Here's what you should be asking. How does your body work? How does that machine work? Understand that. And then you can start to make lifestyle changes. They're going to help you stay healthy for your whole life. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing we have is we have people that don't have any formal education in anything that we deal with day to day. Right. And then they fall for every single fad diet, fad exercise, fad training program because they don't understand why it doesn't work. You want proof of that. Something like, like I think that the shake weight has been around for 20 years and made hundreds of millions of dollars because people don't understand <laughs> that's a useless product. Right. 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 If, if we're doing a good job educating people, we should point and laugh at the shake weight and go buy a kettlebell or go buy a dumbbell or go buy a pair of running shoes. Right. Mm-hmm. But we have this country where we just keep cranking out people that are uneducated in how their body works, not their fault that I can blame the system on this one. And then they keep falling for the next fat diet, the next fat fitness trend. And we wonder why everybody's sick and overweight. I don't think, I think the answer is pretty obvious to me. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree hundred percent. And it's, you know, like no one knows how their own heart functions, but they can tell you how a car engine is supposed to work. You know, it's like, shoot, it, you walking around in this thing for the rest of your life, that car, you could just go buy a new one, you know? Yeah. And then the crazy thing is guys like guys like me and you and people in our profession, we're so, we want to point and laugh at kind of the, the Instagram accounts and the, the magazines out there that are spewing bad information. Right. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, why don't we look at their audience and think about why their audience doesn't understand as bad information. I mean, it's, it's on both sides, right? I yeah. think if you're a professional in our, in our profession, you have a, a, um, a responsibility to your followers and your fan base to put out good information. Right. But if mm-hmm. you're a consumer and you're going to buy a product, you have some responsibility to educate yourself on what that product does and how it works. Right. And what it does within your body. And I just think we're painfully uneducated in how the body works. So we in turn fall for all these scams for the last, you know, 50, 60 years of the fitness industry being what it is. Yeah. And it's a billion dollar industry and people know it, you know, and that's a sad thing. But anyway, to, to keep it on the billion dollar industry, right? I want to talk about your book, uh, Finish Strong, Resistance well, Training finish, for the Endurance yeah. Athlete, right? Yeah. Exactly right, man. So like okay. I, I said earlier, I grew up my whole life doing power type sports. I was a power lifter for a long time, competed in Olympic weightlifting in my 20s. And then for a couple of years, kind of just got got out of the competitive realm, was really into coaching and, and working at scene also. Mm-hmm. And then in my early 30s, I was writing for a magazine called Fit in New Jersey. It's not, it's not around there. It was a really cool magazine, kind of about the fitness industry in New Jersey. And the first or second year I was writing for them, the entire staff got together and ran a bunch of road races as team fit in New Jersey. Right. And it's really cool. I had never really done cardio like that before. And I kind of got, got enveloped in that world and really started liking it. And then right around 2011, I ran my first marathon, the New Jersey marathon. It's a great race down the shore. And then uh, I just kind of got caught the ball, ran a bunch of marathons after that. And I, I, I looked up with Dr. R.J. Borges, my co-author on the book, a doctor of athletic training here at Seat Hall. And we were running together a lot for a couple years. We were running together after work. And then we would live together. And we started having this conversation of, well, we're, in the endurance world, a lot of people don't lift weights for various reasons, right? It's not part of the culture of the sport. They think it's going to make them slower. They're going to put on a ton of muscle mass. It's going to be bad for their triathlons, 
swims, bikes, runs, whatever it might be. So we got to start proposing to authors, I'm proposing to publishers, what if two guys that are living this every day, he has a PhD, I have two master's degrees, so we have the education credentials to do it. We've competed in a ton of races between us, kind of put this model, this, uh, this book out that presents the model for integrating resistance training into endurance sport, competing and training, and put out there for everybody. And uh, we got a publisher interested pretty quickly and kind of been running with that idea for the last couple of years. That's pretty cool, man. What uh, so what was like your true motivation to like want to start becoming it? Like, how is this your first book or do you have more? Forgive this me. Is my I don't, first. I don't, okay, this okay, first. cool. So yeah, yeah, what what made you want to become like an author? Like, is is this something you see yourself continuing to do for the rest of your life, or is it just you know something that you you love to do and you say, hey, I need to get this this information out there? I I, no. I think I'm I think I'm okay. Let me rephrase that. I'm going to write more books. Let's put that okay. out the worst the right way. I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, it was a really cool experience, and the motivation was I felt like. I had some information from about 20 years in the profession that could benefit a lot of people and a lot of readers, right? Mm-hmm. And then I felt like I had a lot of information that was very specific to a clientele and a fan base that doesn't have that information, which is you have the endurance a triathlon, master swimming, marathon, cycling world, and then you have the resistance training world over here, right? Mm-hmm. And my idea was for 10 years at that point, I was kind of mixing the two and seeing great success. And I'm not breaking world records, but I've gotten progressively faster as I've gotten into my 40s. I've, I've thankfully avoided any kind of significant injury, which I think is a product of being physically strong and incorporating resistance <laughs> training into my training. I wanted to help other people do that. The other thing was I was getting a ton of questions, right? I get a ton of emails, questions, whatever. How do you lift weights if I'm running a marathon? How do I, I'm a triathlete? So like a lot of people want this information. What if I just made it available to everybody at one time? And that was kind of the idea for the book. Okay. That's, that's a smart way to do things, man. Do you, um, you run marathons, you said, correct? Yes. What's your fastest time? Uh, just under 330, 327 or something like that. The usually marathon a couple years ago. Okay. Now you got, I always tell, um, people, you know, uh, we we have an intern that is a uh, cross country runner at, at Monmouth. I always tell him, I said, man, you got to be a psycho to do events like that, just to sustain and endure that pain, man. Co- Coach, hey, are, are you a psycho? <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. I don't I don't think I'm a psycho. I think I'm a pretty level headed individual. So, right? what the hell made you want to run a fucking marathon? Okay. Here's a, here, I'm going to explain two things to you. All right. And as a strength yeah. coach, you're going to get one. And I don't know if you have a family yet, but all the guys with kids and, and wives will understand this. Mm-hmm. First of all is this, and I tell our players this all the time at Seton Hall. I'm, I'm in good shape for my age, but I'm not incredibly athletic, right? Like if we go, if I if I go play basketball, I might be the worst player. If you'll embarrass me in a batter's box any day, okay? Mm-hmm. But you cannot be miserable as long as I can. I can do miserable longer than anybody and gut it out and grind and find a way out to the other side, okay? Okay. A perverse sense of pride in that, and so a large extent, that's what running a marathon is, right? Even if you're in a great location with great scenery and there's water everywhere, it was cheering you on. At some point, you're running for over three hours. It ain't, a, a, it's not fun for everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Secondarily, is this man? I always tell, tell to our student athletes when they tell me they don't like to run, you'll see me running around campus, running around town all over during the day, and they're like, "Oh man, I said you're running up on the right aid. What were you doing that for from campus?" You know what I mean? And yeah. I'm like, "I hate running." And like, here's the deal, man, when you're 20 years old and your whole life is lit and it's bars and nightclubs and bottle service and different boyfriends, girlfriends, children, your friends, frat parties, all that running is the worst thing you're going to do that day. Right. Mm-hmm. Be 40, get a mortgage. Get oh a, yeah. Get some kids, 
Get to you get used to sleeping four hours a night so you can pursue all your passions and have a day job and, and get those bills and the, the insurance concerns and all the things that go on being an adult. And there's days running is the best thing I get to do, man. There's days I can't wait to put on some running shoes and hit the pavement and go out there for an hour or two and just zone out and not have my phone on and, and just kind of kind of zone out and get my own space for a little bit. So I would say I think running's a great activity to clear your mind. And um, as you, it's one of the few things, too, as you get older, you can actually get better at. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I've got to come to terms just physiologically. My best squat is years ago, right? Mm-hmm. My best power clean happened 15, 20 years ago. My best marathon might still be coming. You know what I mean? It's something you feel yeah. like you're better at as you get older. I think that's really cool. And it's one of the few things about it's one of the things about that sport we don't talk about a whole lot. But you can definitely, you know, no one's a better basketball player at 40 than you were at 20. <laughs> right, right. A marathoner at 40 than you were at 20. Yeah, I think Tom Brady's the only guy to uh, test time and being the best at his yeah, position. Yeah, I mean, there's at his a couple age, of you know? extreme outliers. I even like, like LeBron's a guy who's incredibly exactly yeah late thirties. You know what I mean? His, his whole draft class is retired. Yeah, so yeah, I mean, some of their kids are coming to the NBA now. And yeah, you right about that? Yeah, yeah, his his <laughs> son's about to be in there at some point, right, next year or two. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's such a um, like such an anomaly, such a perfect storm of like the best genetics, the best training, the best diet, the best mindset. Um, those guys are so few and far between. Yeah. No, 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 yeah, you're right about that. So, so your book, right, Finish Strong, is this geared more just for endurance athletes, or can like anybody pick it up, read it, and try it out during the training? Two things. I think. I think our core, our core audience is people that are already competing in the endurance events, right? Already triathletes, okay. marathoners, and they, they're missing that one piece of their training that is resistance training, and they want to know how to implement it. I think it's perfect for them, right? Mm-hmm. You're already running the miles. You're already swimming the laps. You're already biking the, the dozens of miles. How do you add resistance training to what you're already doing to take that next step in your training and maybe go from barely finishing a marathon to you know qualifying for Boston or barely – barely qualifying for Boston and maybe being on the podium for your age group, something like that. Right. Okay. Well, the secondary group that they would benefit a lot from it are strength coaches. Right. Cause the joke I've been making on the whole promo run of the book is in general, and I'm putting myself in this until the last 10 years, strength coaches and endurance athletes don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Right. Yeah. We love training football. We love training lacrosse. We love training baseball. And then it's like, all right, I'll do cross country if I have to, right? I'll mm-hmm. do the distance swimmers if I have to. And they come in the weight room and they're exhausted. They're emaciated from the run. They have their right, dirty sneakers on from the trail. They're, they're tracking mud and, and mulch all over your squat racks and your platforms. So you're mad at that to begin with, right? <laughs> and uh, and what I, th- I think it, as our, one, I think a, I think strength and conditioning is obviously a great profession. I love it. I'm the biggest poster word for it ever. But I think we've really done those athletes a disservice over the last 40, 50 years. Or we put all our research, all our time, all our effort into developing power. And I think that that's super valuable and it's great. And there's uh, so much information on football, lacrosse, basketball, whatever it is. I think one, one population that's really underserved is your endurance athletes. And I want myself and this book to be the beginning of addressing that and, and realizing how to get, get those kids better and really serve those student athletes better as well. And the other thing is if you look at from, a, we talked about like kind of a business kind of thing before, if you look at just the amount of endurance athletes out there and how many people are doing that for so much longer of their career, if you're going you know, to run a marathon into the 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond, if you want to sell a product to somebody, you know, a football player, unless they go to the NFL, ages out of football 22, they kind of, if they're lucky, if a lot of people it's 18, right? That that customer or that client in the endurance world 
doesn't get done running until they're in their 60s or 70s, potentially, right? You okay. Look at a population that is, number one, underserved because we don't produce enough information for them. And number two, in my opinion, not enough people in our profession think about serving that community because there's so many people doing those events for such a long period of time throughout their lifespan. It's it's a, it's silly, to my in my opinion, not to go out and create a product for that demographic. Okay, so it's more of a, it's, it's like a lifelong business plan, sort of say. Yeah. Yeah. Right, that's, think, that's smart. Yeah. I, I hope so, man. I think it's a, it's a good demographic to tap into. And it's a demographic that doesn't have access to information, right? Mm-hmm. You look, you look at the stats, more people are running marathons than ever before. How do we help them get better? You know what I mean? And the okay. other thing is, I think and real quick, as a college guy like myself, you see your cross country kids and you see your distance swimmers deal with so many injuries, right? How yeah. many cases of shin splints? How many cases of patella tendonitis? How many cases of plantar fasciitis? How many swimmers do you deal with that their shoulders are just complete messes by the time they're 18, 19 years old? Yeah. Can we make that better for those kids by implementing a low, a, some level of resistance training at a younger age and making their body stronger and more structurally sound? And that's the other mm-hmm. thing I, I saw too, man, just being around this profession for so long. So many injured distance athletes or endurance athletes at such a young age I want to be part of correcting that problem before it happens, right? For right. a lot of that, you know, working the trainers on rehab and put stuff together for them. But can we keep some of these kids out of the training room and have good productive careers longer? I mean, that's a win for everybody. No, it definitely is. So I want to ask you a question because I, I mean, I dealt with distance kids um, when I worked with track and field at uh, Fordham. I'm going to deal with some distance swimmers here. And it's kind of like you said, it's always a challenge. Like, shoot, what do we do with distance kids? Um, personally, I think, you know, I don't know. I want, I want to hear your thoughts. Like the, if these kids cover so much ground, they're always working on endurance. When I bring them in the weight room, I'm working on strength. Um, yeah. what, what are your thoughts? What are some like your ideas when you, when you start to program for these kids, what do you focus on? Uh, cool, cool, man. So the, the main thing we did in, in the book, which I've obviously implemented daily at Seton Hall for the last couple of years is we identified six foundation exercises. Okay. okay. And we got that these are the six most important exercises we're going to do for, for endurance athletes. And then we put in progressions and regressions for each one, right? So, for example, in my opinion, the barbell back squat, probably the best lower extremity exercise you can do, been a fan of it for 20-plus years, right? But if the barbell back squat is what we're going to call the foundation exercise, and this kid just got off a 10-mile hilly run in the rain, can we do a goblet squat? Can we do a leg press? Can we regress that movement and get a similar motor pattern and some quad activation? And then, or some days he or she might come in feeling great. Instead of a back squat, we try a front squat, overhead squat, box squat, so I'm a little bit harder, right? Okay. And the idea is to have the idea of being a little bit open of these are our six foundation exercises and then know the progressions and regressions and be willing to make the changes to meet them where they are. Right. So, mm-hmm. for example, the cross country might come in one day or I'll know the training ahead of time. But let's say, for example, Monday's our quote unquote squat day, but Sunday was brutal or Monday morning was a brutal long run. Let's do a med ball squat. Let's do a dumbbell goblet squat. Let's do kettlebell stuff instead. And maybe next later in the week, we come in and feel a little better. Now we'll do our back squats. You know what I mean? Okay. We take the same approach to our, our RDLs, our hip hinge exercises, our lunge or single leg stuff, and upper body push, upper body pull, and a hip bridge. And kind of the, I think the key idea is you want to be a, maybe a little more flexible with these student athletes than you are with other kids. Just for example, you know, baseball practice is pretty much the same for everybody. Take the, take the hitters in baseball, right? Or mm-hmm. like when you're a football at Monmouth, you have the season-long plan, and you kind of know, you know, maybe whatever, Sunday we really get after in the weight room, then Monday's a recovery day, Tuesday's, 
this, whatever it is, where you probably kind of stick to a really almost set in stone plan, right? Mm-hmm. I think with endurance athletes, you got to be a little more open to working around their schedule and meeting them where they are physiologically and making some changes and progressions, regressions based on where they are with the idea that we want to train and get stronger and maintain strength throughout the season, but do it in a way that's going to make them not sore or not too banged up to go on the next run, which in their case is the most important thing they're doing. Gotcha. Okay. So, so you kind of like just auto regulate day based on feel, which, which I don't, I don't really hear much about with coaches, which is, that's pretty cool. No, it, it, I'll be honest, man. It's really hard in a team setting, right? Okay. If, if you personally train somebody, it's much easier. If you train yourself, it's way easier. Uh, it's hard to implement in a team setting, right? The mm-hmm. other thing we did is we kind of broke the year down into four sessions because for example, you were with football. There's a very clear off season, preseason, in season, Bowl season, whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, with, with endurance athletes, it's it's all over the place, right? Depending where you live, the big races might be in the summer, might be in the winter. So we kind of broke the year down to four segments, which is your quote unquote off season when you're probably still training, but there's not a you know, race immediately coming up, right? So you kind of that's not time to cross train, build in some new resistance stuff and try some stuff in the weight room. Then we have our um, base building where we start ramping up our mileage, right? This is like your, your big race might be a couple months away, but now your long runs go from five miles to 10, 12, 13 miles. Then okay. We have mileage period, which is where really running is the most important thing. You might be running 25, 30, 35 miles a week. So we're going to acknowledge your resistance training should probably come down a little bit, right? Then we talk about the taper, how to taper for a big event. And we kind of leave it open-ended enough where, let's say, let's say you're in New Jersey like we are, and the New York City Marathon on November 10th is your big event. You can base your whole year around that being your big event or your in-season, right? Well, okay. so you're down in Florida and your big event is the Miami Marathon in April, you're going to shift everything around to kind of build that one event, right? And the biggest problem endurance athletes have that are not in like the college or high school setting is there's no clear time of the year of when to train, how to train, what phase you should be in. So I think adopting one thing I learned in the college setting for 20 years is there's different times of the year and you periodize around those times of the year. Implement that to your adult, even your youth endurance athletes and have them train on almost the same schedule based on their training cycle and their races for the year. Okay. How, how big are you on like tapering effects and stuff like that? Is it even a thing or you just kind yeah, of- Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think as you get into- you're, you're long, I think the longer the endurance event you're going to do, the more important it is, right? Mm-hmm. So in my case, as a pretty experienced marathoner, if I'm running a 5K, I don't taper all. I just train. It's a training run for me, right? If I'm running a half marathon, I'll take a week or 10 days before that and kind of cycle my training down to match what I'm doing on the race day. I'll talk about that in a second. If I'm running a marathon, those two, two and a half weeks before the race, I'm really decreasing my training, right? With the idea of my, phys- my physiologically, my cardiovascular is going to stay elevated and functioning well, but my body is going to feel better and allow me to be recovered and faster on race day, right? Okay. So if, 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 and if you're, in a tri- if you're an Ironman, tri- if you're a sprint triathlon, you probably need a little bit of a taper. If you're doing a full Ironman, you probably need to taper for three or four weeks before that just to get your body ready. Really? Okay. Mileage. Yeah. So I think it's a, I think, as much as I love the endurance training world, I think adopting some of those ideas from college training conditioning would help everybody out because the idea of just always training more, always running more miles, always running more laps 
is it's a broken system, right? It ends up with everybody hurt, everybody laid out in the training room. So can we be smart about it, periodize the year, take these couple months to get as big and strong as injuries as is possible, take these couple months to really ramp up our mileage and get our running or our indoor stuff in, and take these couple weeks to taper and get ready for our big events. I think that would be better off if we at least entertain that. There's not a sweeping answer for everybody, but I think the options we present in the book and the stuff I've experimented with on social media the last couple of years work for me and work for a lot of people. Okay. Now that's good to hear because I always hear coaches, you know, like distance coaches, like our distance swimming coach. Um, you know, when I was at Fordham, our track and field coach about tapering. And to me, it was like, well, we don't train enough to taper. So, I mean, well, I personally, I, it's like, we don't know. Oh, oh not we, I don't know yeah. what they're doing at practice. And you, you talked about how, you know, these guys are getting beat up with mileage and stuff, you know? Well, when I say all the time strength, and I'm, I'm super lucky at Seton Hall where our, our swim coach is one of my best work friends, a great guy named Derek Sapp, runs a great program. We've been tight for the last couple of years he's been here. And we communicate almost daily about what he's doing in practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's super important for, honestly, if you're, if you're a young strength coach listening to this, I think you almost can't talk to your sport coaches enough about what's going on in practice, how the kids looked, what they went through, what they had planned for practice. Um, and when we say in a book, which I kind of kind of think works out, is it practice or you're running or swimming? Is that taper by, let's say, 20%? Taper the weight room by 20%. Just make it super easy. If your normal run is 10 miles and you taper that to eight miles for a big event coming up the next week, take your sets and make them sets of eight instead of 10. Or if you normally lift 100 pounds, lift 80 pounds. But taper your intensity and your volume in the weight room the same way you do the pool or the uh, or the track or the bike or whatever we're talking about, uh, the endurance-wise, and taper the weight room the same way. But I will say, I think um, I, I think strength coaches and sport coaches need to communicate a little better on stuff like that. Um, because it's not like tapering is not a new idea, but if it's not explained and not everybody on board understands how it's going to go, it can go bad right away. Right. Like I worked this right. coach before, not, not the one we have now, but when we were going to go taper, he just cut the weight out totally. We just stopped lifting for a month. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that makes no sense to me. Right. Mm. I think trying to keep it similar to what you're doing in a pool makes way more sense. Okay. So, so you're basically saying, so when you taper, don't completely eliminate the stress, just decrease the amount it's, of it. Right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. Okay. Because I, I always thought what that what what you just said. I always thought, hey, if we're tapering, we're just not going to do. Right. You know, and my, gonna focus on my one thing. Is, if if you've been doing something that's been feeling good and productive, and your body feels good while you're doing it for I don't know, I say twelve weeks, whatever it is, why would you all of a sudden remove the stimulus to zero? Go from a hundred to zero when you're getting ready to do the biggest, most important meet of the year, right? You don't stop swimming. Makes sense, you yeah. don't stop running. So I think just communicate with your coaches and find how much they're going to decrease their volume <clears> and <throat> follow that pattern as best you can in the weight room is the, the thing I found to be successful. Okay. Now that, that makes sense. So you would, you would like decrease the volume and the intensity basically. Yeah. Or would you yeah. just training that movement pattern? Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's good to know for someone like myself who never really, you know, thought of, um, tapering in that sense or you know don't didn't really believe in it much when you know only see a team twice a week you know um right. but it makes sense stress is stress and you, and you got to alleviate it at some point um angelo this was good stuff man i appreciate all the information you brought everything from you know how to how to run a brand how to start a business how to become a state director with the nsca how to write a book or how to train a distance athlete this is good stuff man yeah man, i really appreciate that thank you yeah no and listen before i let you go man i, I gotta i gotta ask you a, a 
bunch of questions I Let's personally had. <laughs> Are these like fast, fast response or how do we do this? Uh, no, I mean, let, take your time, man. Okay. So what I noticed, right. Cause I, we follow each other on uh, social media now, just, just, just how the world turns, right. Just whatever. Um, you're a big sneakerhead. I am hundred percent. Name your top five sneakers, man. Go. Okay. Uh, gray and neon air max 95. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, oh, I got, we're going to go super old school, black and red suede Puma Clydes low tops. The ones that got me into sneakers. I was a super little kid. It's I don't even know what those anniversary are. This, so they're about to drop some crazy colorways. Okay. That's one of my top, that's my top two ever. I uh, got to go to the Jordan 11 patent leather. I got married in a cool gray pair with a gray tuxedo. Shut um, the fuck yeah, up. That's awesome. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> that's awesome. Great, great sneaker. Uh, I'm going to go to the, the Jordan five. The fire rub with the 23 on the heel. Okay. That, it alluded me when I was younger. They came back out a couple of years ago. I got two pairs, still got one of nice, one of my favorites ever. And then uh, I'm going to go to Reebok Twilight Zone Pump. It's a little, I'm not that tall of a guy. So it's too tall to actually wear a lot of places. Mm-hmm. But that, it's, a, it's a really cool basketball shoe. When I was a kid, that, that pump on the tongue was just like the height of sneaker technology. And I still love Reebok Pumps now. That's awesome, man. Like I saw, like that was one of the first things I saw when I, you know, look through your Instagram and I'm like, holy shit, this guy's a sneakerhead. That's fucking awesome. That's dope yeah, as man. hell, man. Um, what about boots? Tim's, you know, big, Tim, big Tim guy. I, Your Jersey I, guy I, gotta be. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like, I like boots and Tim's. Um, like I, I kind of just the regular Tim's like everybody likes, like nothing. I don't get too, too crazy to those. You know what yeah, I mean? Just the constructs, man. Gotta I'm, keep yeah, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to point in my life. We're like, I'm, I'm very into a couple of things, right? Mm-hmm. I don't need any more interest or hobbies. I'm good. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's yeah. like I stay with strength and conditioning, sneakers, hip hop, and that might be about it. If I get any more hobbies or interests, I'm going to run out of time and money. So it's kind of all I got time. That's <laughs> time, family time, most importantly, right? Run yeah. out of that stuff. That's dope. My top sneakers. Listen, I'm not a big sneaker head, but back in the days, I used to rock the Air Forces, right? Yeah. High tops in the winter, low tops in the summer. Got Beautiful. to. Um, I'm a big Tim guy, right? Got to have a clean pair of constructs. If you're from North Jersey, yep, New York, yeah. that, that that's the thing right there. Um, the Jordans, I always had the fours and I love them. Um, okay. and I don't, rem- uh, I had the Reebok pumps at one point. And I love those things. I had them in white and white, green and black. Nice. And I never buy green because I'm a, a group of giants fan. You don't wear jets colors. That, that's right. just what, what it was. Right. Um, the Iversons, I don't remember what it was, but you like, I had them back in the days and you just, like brought this memory back into my head that that was like gone oh my god i had them in carolina blues and white and it had the zipper on them you probably know which one i'm talking yeah, about yeah they're, they're the uh, you had the them in your video i actually okay. just I got, I got a pair of those recently and i did a, in a, did a review for youtube and instagram on those um but yeah man i was i always say that i was a man with it if you're like a, an undersized guy that's a basketball fan, uh-huh. he had to be your favorite player. I had to. He was Dude, that was my first basketball jersey. They list him at six one, right? On, uh-huh. on small card stuff, which is like everybody else on their media guides, including our players, you know, it's a lie. In in 05, I won tickets to go to a Nets game at Sick Courtside, right? Uh-huh. And we're playing the Sixers. He on he's he's doing the shoot-around stuff before the game. And I'm telling you, Alan Iverson on an NBA court looked like a little kid that won a contest to go shoot around with the team before the game. That's <laughs> and from that thing, I always liked him, but then I saw how small he was compared to how good he was. Oh, like, yeah. That's my guy. That's one of my favorite players forever now. No, no doubt. I, I got to watch Allen Iverson play live, too. And same thing, yeah, he was the shortest guy on the court. I don't think he was six one. He had to have been like five eleven tops. Yeah, like, he's, I, he's a tiny guy, man. Yeah, and, uh, 
And apparently, he was, from what I've heard, he was never really into Arsenal. He was never really into strength conditioning or um, diet, nutrition, that kind of thing. Which, I, number one, I hate to hear that about him. Number two, maybe he would have had a longer career if he was into that stuff. But I think it, as an iconic NBA player from when we were young, man, he's one of my favorites. Definitely, he definitely changed the way they played the game. I'll tell you yeah, that much. No question. You know, one of the highest points per game player of all time, the fanciest player, brought the crossover into the game, right? Yeah. Um, spent his lost his money on things we won't discuss, but you know where I'm headed with that yeah. one. Um, well, and another thing you just mentioned the hip hop, you're a big hip hop guy. Um, I, I think you said oh, what was it, Fat Joe that liked one of your posts or something like that, right? Uh I just I just read Fat Joe's autobiography. Uh, I okay. got it for Christmas shout to my That's right, that's right, that's what it was, yeah. Yeah, man. And uh, like, I don't know, dude, I think if you if you're a fan of music, if music at all, that guy's been around for 30 years in a field where nobody does 30 years. Um, it's, he's, a, he's a guy you want to learn more about. You know what I mean? I think that's I think the music thing is interesting because, it, you know, I think if you're going to be in our job and relating to young people, you got to live in their world. Right. Yeah. So if you're going to be the guy that's just going to scream like, ah, oh, little baby's terrible. You got to listen to Elvis Presley. The kids are going to check out immediately. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, oh, the Migos aren't as good as the Beatles. Yeah, but if you're 19, <laughs> they're better than the Beatles. You're real. So it's like, but you got to know what's going on and be, be in the world they are. And I, I, I like a lot of the new music and new movies and new clothes and stuff now. And I think one of the, one of the cool things about our job is it keeps you young, right? I'm oh, in my hell 40s, yeah. but I spend so much time with 18, 22-year-olds. I'm as excited about, you know, new Spotify drops on Friday as anybody else is now. Yeah. Well, who's, who's your top five right there? Top, your top hip hop artist, man. Right, all time or right now? Uh, all, all time. Cause right now it's going to be guys. I don't even know. Okay. So all, all time. I, go, I think, uh, I think J, number one of me is Jay-Z yeah, okay. catalog. I don't know if you can argue with it. Like just so many albums, songs, Hits. so many iconic moments for the culture. Yeah. Uh, number two. And I think this is partially being who I am and from Tom's River, New Jersey, it's got to be Eminem. I think he's a great rapper. Yep. Like, he was like me and all my friends when he came out. You know what I mean? That's kind of uh-huh. him. Uh, then I guess Biggie and Tupac, three and four in whatever order. And then five, being from New Jersey, I got to say this. I think Redman. I knew you were going to say Redman. <laughs> amazing catalog in the 90s. And in my opinion, the best mixture of I can rap insanely well and be laugh out loud funny at the same time i don't think anybody's ever done that as good as red man okay uh, that that's an interesting i mean the top four yeah five i mean a lot of people might disagree with you red man he was trendy at a certain point i think i was in like eighth grade when he dropped um yeah. I'll, I'll be that i think that was, yeah, that was, that was a banger man yeah but, um, i think my, my four are like kind of universal and that fifth one is kind of kind of personal okay gotcha my my, I mean, my one personal best rapper of all to me, best hip hop artist of all time to me personally, my personal guy, Lloyd Banks. Man, I grew up with him. Uh, I started I started listening to Banks when I was in like eighth grade, and I just, I don't know, the punchlines hit me harder. The the lifestyle fit me, man. It was awesome. You you can't deny how good he was at punchlines. It was it's incredible. Hey, they named him the POK. You you don't get the yeah. you, you earn the title punchline king. And a lot of people would say it's probably Cassidy, but I, I would I would defer to Lloyd Banks because that's my guy, man. But nice. I like it. That's awesome. Hey, look, it's great to know things like this about you, man. Uh, about coaches in general, that you sneaker head, hip hop head. That's all. And you're from Jersey, so you gotta be, right? 
Yeah, man, I don't understand. You grew up where we grew up and we're exposed to all these things and just decided to be like just a boring, regular person. <laughs> like, how do you go? How do you go from you growing up in Jersey City or me growing up a mile from Seaside Heights and you turn 30 and like, oh, I don't know, I guess I'm just going to Coles, buy some khakis and some, some you know, moccasins, just living the most of <laughs> life. I mean, I, I'll be honest, man, I don't have that in me. That's just not, it's not. Yeah. That's awesome, man. You said real quick before we get off, you said you're, uh, did you read the fat Joe book or you just started? Yeah, it? I just finished it last night. Uh, how is it? It's good. It's worth, it's worth your time. If you're a fan at all. Yeah. Um, and I'll be honest. I think one thing, maybe strength coach, you get out of that. If not really a fan, he, he adapted and changed to the, the music industry so many times over 30 years, right? The mm-hmm. same way guys like me and you and younger coaches have to adapt and change to the world that we live in. Right. He came out and was selling cassette tapes. Then it went to CDs, then it went to streaming, you know, downloading, then streaming. Um, you know, everybody he came out with isn't really you know, making his level anymore. And I think it's kind of interesting. I guess somebody like yourself has done a great job adapting to the, the technology, right? And mm-hmm. going on social media and showing what you're doing, what you're doing with your players of here's the the nuts and bolts and what information we're giving our coaches. And that wasn't a thing 20 years ago, man. When I got in this profession, there was no such thing as activity tracking or any of the stuff that we're doing now. Yeah. And I really believe if you choose not to move on with the technology and stay current in what's going on, you will not have your long career in this profession. Right. Right. Real quick. You don't want to fall for everything that comes out. You don't want to be a super trendy guy. or girl. Exactly. Yeah. What's happening now is, Head sport coaches and athletic directors are getting younger, right? So now we're in a generation of head sport coaches and ADs that grew up with everything you're using and posting about online, right? Mm-hmm. So when you interview for a job and you say, what do you think about VBT? Or what do you think about the catapult system? Or whatever it might be. And you're like a deer in headlights and can't have that conversation. Don't be surprised when somebody that can have that conversation gets the job or gets your job if you get laid off, right? Exactly. So you yeah. Know what's going on and be able to put that, that two things. Know what's going on. You could not like it. You could not like a technology out there, but you got to be able to intelligently explain why it doesn't do what it's supposed to do and why you don't want to use it, but say, I don't like system X, but I really like system Y and I want to bring it and implement it this way with this group for this year. And that's one thing, you know, he's been, I hate that we're talking about Fat Joe so much on the Australian Disney podcast, <laughs> but he's been great at adapting to the game over 30 years. If you're going to stay in our game 30 years, you got to adapt the same way. Would you agree? I'd agree 100% because, and I always tell people, you don't want to become a dinosaur and then eventually you'll become a fossil. And that's what you don't want to be, just something forgot about, you know? Yeah and, and, yeah. and the other thing is, too, if you're in the private sector, there's two things real quick. If you're in the private sector, anybody that's a potential prospective client, is using or is aware of all this stuff already. So you have to be, right? Mm-hmm. Number two, if you're in the college sector and you're recruiting kids, they're oh, aware yeah. of all of this already. And so are their families, right? Oh, so yeah. If you're recruiting a kid again, say you're down at Monmouth and someone's deciding between uh, Monmouth, Rutgers, and Stockton, whatever it might be. They want to stay in New Jersey. And, you know, your school is painful behind the other two. You're going to probably at some point fall to the bottom of that kid's list, right? Yeah. Got to go another conversation with, you know, potential recruits and their families. Not definitely. Not, and it's always been a conversation where people, and it's funny because years ago people would say, Hey, it's a recruiting tool. And my thing was like, all right, that's cool. But if you don't know how to use it, then w- what does it become after, after kid commits to you? And it's funny. We actually, um, unfortunately, you know, one of our, um, players transferred to another university and one of the strength coaches I know there, uh, reached out to me to ask about him. And I'm like, he's a great kid, blah, blah, blah. Here's his running speed. What, what he hit with us this past season. And then he messaged me back. He said, 
Yeah, he asked if we use GPS tracking. And I'm like, well, shit, that's great because I sold the kid. And now he went to another university and says, do you have this in, right. in your uh, for, for your expense for me to utilize as a player here? So and, and I, I thought that was great. And it, that kind of hit me different. And, you know, what I'm saying it's like, OK, I'm doing a good job without oh, him no telling question. me I'm doing a great job. You know, no question, man. Yeah. And real quick, one last thing about Fat Joe that people don't know about. Dude, he was a pioneer of hip hop. People don't know. He's, yeah, he's, like, the, he's like one of the founding fathers. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. Like, depending on how old you are and when you got into him, you think that's like the start of his career. Yeah. But like, it goes back way further than whatever you think, probably. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, and the Boogie uh, Down Bronx, that, that's the that's where hip hop was born. Yeah, yeah. So I think, again, if you like just hip hop in general, the music industry, you know, it's a, it's a decent book to read. Yeah. Um, and you, you probably got some things you can pull out of there as a strength coach and, and use in your arsenal, too. That's awesome, man. That's that's awesome. And, and I love how you just related Fat Joe's book to strength and conditioning. That's yeah, you're trendy, man. You got it going on, and it's good stuff, Go ahead, brother. Dude. Listen, hey, I appreciate your time today, man. This is a great episode, man. And uh definitely, definitely looking to get you back on at some point, man. Yeah, man. I'm in. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Yep.